Second uh, Peter chapter one. We continue our series. It's just simply entitled "Add," and the reason we're adding is because we want to live a godly life. And Peter, in this passage, tells us about seven Christian graces that will help us live a godly life in the Lord. And so uh, we started week one. The Bible says, "Add to your faith." So we must have faith in order to be a Christian. Uh, I think that goes without saying, but our faith is what begins our Christian life. And we are to build upon that foundation. And last week we looked at the value of virtue. So we start with faith and then we add virtue. This week we look at knowledge because Second Peter chapter 1 verse 5 says, And beside this... Giving all diligence. Now that means you got to work really, really hard at it. Put forth effort. In fact, the Bible means earnestness. Make haste to do this. Giving all diligence. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on the service this evening. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for the time that we've been given together around your word to learn from it. And Lord, I pray that you would help us now as we study it, not only learn from it, but begin to live by it. Lord, if there's somebody in this room, uh, even me, Lord, who isn't necessarily doing exactly what we need to in the areas of which we're going to be speaking tonight, I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would guide us into that truth and help us and enable us to walk worthy of you, Lord. I pray that you would bless now, Lord, I completely trust in your hand of leadership in this sermon And Lord, I pray that everything would be done and said to glorify you. I ask in Jesus' wonderful and precious name, amen. Amen. Now, the Christian life is a hard life to live. Not because, you know, if I look at the world, I see people who are living what we call hard lives. You see somebody who maybe has been addicted to drugs and uh, you can see the toll that it's taken on their body. Maybe a 25-year-old looks like a 50-year-old because... Uh, drugs and alcohol and other things like that have made them live what we would call a hard life. But the Christian life is a hard life, not in the same sense. It's difficult because of all that goes into the Christian life, and more importantly, the great opposition that we face. I believe Preacher was right on point. And by the way, let me just say this up front. If you did not listen to Preacher's message this morning... Maybe you were in the room and you didn't listen to it. Go back and listen to it again. But if you weren't here, listen to the sermon this morning. A Church on the Run. One of the best sermons I've ever heard him preach. It was fantastic. And maybe that's just because I finally started listening. But it was really, really good. And I I just hope that you'll go back and listen to it. But in that sermon, he made a... He alluded to the fact, and he, he flat out called it what it was... We are oblivious to the satanic opposition that, that, that faces us. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness and rulers in high places. So don't you ever forget the devil is not your friend. He is your adversary. We must remember this. The Christian life is hard because of the opposition we face. The Christian life is hard because we are foreigners in this world. This world is not our home, as you've heard it said before. We are just passing through. And so we do not feel at home in this world. I'll never forget spending three and a half years of my life living in California. I was just a wayfaring stranger living in California. I was a Texan out in the lands of the fruits and the nuts. And I had no desire to be there. 
And I'm just telling you right now, that's what we as Christians are. We feel out of place. We don't feel at home. And so the Christian life is a hard life to live. And you'll hear sermons and you'll read books and you'll read articles and hear all sorts of self-helps on how to live the Christian life. But really, if you pay attention to them, there are only three ways that people believe you can live the Christian life. They are these. Number one, the let go and let God theory. The let go and let God theory. Now, this sounds good. In fact, it makes for really, really good preaching. Just let go and let God take over your life. That sounds good, doesn't it? This is something that is becoming increasingly popular in modern day churches. And and we've said it for years, but modern day churches are taking it to places we never meant it to go. You see, uh, there's a man by the name of Francis Chan. Uh, I have made a point, in in my ministry at least, not to defame any... uh, other pastors or preachers from this pulpit. Now, doctrinal error I'll call out, but but, uh, I'm not going to criticize a man, but I will tell you that I do not agree with Francis Chan on a lot of stuff. But he says here, uh, Peter is not trying to place you under a set of rules and regulations so that you try and try even harder to develop these Christ-like qualities. In fact, he is actually commenting on this passage of Scripture that we're speaking about. He says, to the contrary... The necessary action on our part is to learn to relinquish control, to rest in Christ, to rely on His Spirit, to surrender our will to the will of the Father. Now, here is the real danger in this phrase and in the quote. There is nothing actually wrong with what he's saying. The Christian life is to be lived in complete surrender to God. In fact, that's what Paul was saying. Paul said it better than Francis Chan because probably he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he said, I die daily. Every morning I wake up and I have to surrender my will to the will of the Father. And really what Paul was saying is, I've got to let go and let God. But here's where modern churches have taken this philosophy. It is we will completely be inactive in areas of the Christian life and hope that God takes over in those areas. You know who else tried this? Eliab, David's older brother, and the rest of the Philist, uh, uh, army of Israel as the Philistine giant is down in the valley screaming and defying the armies of the living God. You see, the Bible tells us for quite some time Goliath had been down in the valley saying, I defy the armies of the living God. He was mocking God and making jest at the fact that their, their God was not the real God. And so what Eliab and all of his friends and companions decided to do was sit there, watch, and maybe let go and let God take care of the problem. But it wasn't until a little boy by the name of David came to see the battle set in array and he saw no array happening. There was no battle going on. In fact, what was happening was a stand-up comedian would walk out every day and make fun of God. And David looked around and he said, Is there not a cause? We must understand that the Christian life is not one of inactivity, but it is one of proactivity. You must charge if you're going to live the Christian life. So there is nothing actually wrong with the idea of let go and let God, but what it does is... It really confuses Christians who are not necessarily uh, developed in the Christian life. 
Because they're going to face a temptation and they're going to say, well, I've just got to let go and let God. (laughs) No, (laughs) Joseph fled the scene. That's pretty proactive, don't you think? So let go and let God is not necessarily wrong in and of itself, but it definitely can take us places we do not want it to go. The second philosophy of living the Christian life is this. God has done His part, and now it's all up to you. Now, I don't know if you can already see where this might be taking us, but uh, I will be right up front with you. When someone uses the term legalism, they are not meaning what it's supposed to mean. See, legalism is adding any work to your faith. That is, by definition, legalism. Adding works to your faith in order to maintain your salvation. But when somebody mentions legalism nowadays, this is what they mean. Oh, are you one of those legalists that wears the tie to church? Well, I don't know if I'm a legalist, but I do like looking my best for the Lord. Uh, Are you one of those legalists that, uh, you know, you won't listen to no other music but Southern gospel? Honestly, I won't even listen to most of that now. Are you one of those legalists? No, I'm not a legalist. I just believe that that all things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. Not all things are good. Not all things are edifying. Not all things are wholesome. And so uh, this idea that uh, God has done His part. Now you live, you've got to add, you've got to do stuff, you've got you've to be better, you've got to live more separated, you've got to do all this. Well, that's all good. Because I do believe you ought to live a separated life. I, ought to believe you, I believe you ought to be distinctly different than the rest of those that live around you. I believe we ought to be peculiar people. I believe we ought to be special and, 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 and impactful in the world that we live in. But when somebody says God has done His part, now it's all up to you. What happens is, when we are able to feel as if we accomplish this goal, we become exceedingly prideful. You see, that's why God didn't want works any part of our salvation. He says, for there shall no flesh glory in his sight. For uh, the Bible says, for by grace are you saved, and that not of works, lest any man should, what's the next word there? Boast. Why does it say that? Because if we could somehow maintain our salvation, we would be the most prideful people in all the world. What happens is this kind of philosophy, maybe they believe that God has done His part in terms of salvation and they believe that uh, religiously speaking, but then they do begin to add weights to their religion that don't belong. I read something today that said legalism is not man obeying divine law. Legalism is man obeying man-made law. And I believe that. And so these two philosophies, the real danger in them is they are both true But they are both, uh, my dad taught me a long time ago, a lie by omission is still a lie. And they leave out a great amount of the Christian life. So if these two philosophies are not the way that we ought to live the Christian life, what is the other philosophy? Number three, since God is powerfully at work in you, you yourself must make every effort. This is only more confusing when you begin to search through Scripture. It's only confusing because of the verses and the language that are used, but when you begin to understand the context, it becomes quite clear. 
It becomes confusing because Romans chapter 4 verse 5 says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So, we ought not work, right? We ought not work. Okay, that sounds good. Until James says something that sounds quite different. James says in James chapter 2 verse 17, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Well, Romans tells us we ought not work. James now tells us we should work. James chapter 2, verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So to someone who doesn't understand uh, uh, the context of passages, this can become a quite a confusing thing. How that we are supposed to live the Christian life with works, but without working. You understand the real confusing thing in there? We ought to have works, but we ought not work. Boy, that's strange. So, to clear up the air, I believe this. God is not the author of confusion. I don't believe God puts us in places where we can't understand things. I don't believe His Word is confusing. In fact, what Peter says is, he says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. It's more clear. It's not of any private interpretation, he says. You can understand and know God's Word. So, how do we do that? Well, I believe this. The best way to accomplish anything when working with another person is to effectively communicate their responsibility and your expectation. It's actually quite simple. When you deal with people and you kind of have to help them understand what it is that you expect and what roles that they are to have in that. In other words, when you're a a football player and you you, you go to the huddle, and in my case, there were five other guys because we only played six-man football. There were five other guys in my huddle. I'd say, all right, guys, here's the expectation. And I would say a play. I'd say, the play is this. Now, I would hate to even tell you what one of our play calls was because they were quite elementary. You might be able to crack the code right away. But uh, uh, basically, you, the, the quarterback says, all right, guys, I'll never forget. I got asked to play in an all-star game, and the coaches were really good. They had you know, actual playbooks, and they hadn't gotten their plays off of Madden. It was wonderful <laughs> to see that. And uh, I'll never forget, they're like, all right, Wolfenbarger, we're going to try it, quarterback. And I said, okay, well, I'm pretty accustomed to playing quarterback, played it three years. And I said, all right. And they came in there and said, all right, what we're going to play is we're going to play triple Thunderbird wing nut to the right L27. Oh, what do I do on that one, (laughs) coach? I'm not sure what you just said, but I think you're speaking in tongues and me no believe in that. Boy, I tell you, it's, it, but, but when the quarterback gets back there, he tells a play, and what he is doing is he's saying the expectations are that this play will be successful, and here is every person's responsibility in that play. The linemen are to block to the right or to the left, or they're to open up the A-gap, or the running back is to maybe fake the handoff and go out on a button-hook pattern or whatever the, 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 the play is, but the expectation is the play will succeed, and the quarterback is telling everyone what the respon- their responsibility is in that play. Do you understand what I'm saying? So God gives us His expectation. You are to live the Christian life. Now what we must ask ourselves is, what is our responsibility in that? You see, God wants us to be successful. But how are we to accomplish that? We're to have works, but we're not to work. 
the authoritative passage on this particular subject, I believe, is in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 says this, verse number 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. What's that next word there? Work. Okay. Now, you, you have to work. And you're supposed to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So what's your responsibility in the Christian life? Work. It takes work. Anybody that tells you you can just let go and let God in the Christian life, I completely disagree with them because it takes work. Anything worth having takes work. Unless you win the lottery when the like, Powerball's big. In which case, that's worth having. But you, you did, I guess you scratched it off. Or whatever you do, I'm not sure. I, I have not really played that. But if you're going to have it, it takes work. Well, so we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But notice this. For it is, what's that next word? God which worketh. Now, hold on. Now, Brother Adam, you, you understand contracts. You read contracts all the time. Who is the person that is to work? Brother Adam, can you help me out in verse number 12? <laughs> Don't let me down, attorney. <laughs> Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Who's working in verse 12? You are. Now who's working in verse 13? For it is God which worketh in you. Now, He's a good attorney, I promise. He's much better, you know, outside of church. I'm just kidding, Brother Adam. Who's working? You and God. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. So who's working? Both of you. You are to work, therefore you will have works. But, but uh, in Romans, the Bible says this. For I know that in me dwelleth no good thing that is in my flesh. For to will is present with me. He, he's saying, I want to do what God has for me. He says in verse number 18, For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. So, so even the Apostle Paul had the desire to live the Christian life, but he says, when I start searching my flesh, I realize I can't do it on my own. That's in perfect harmony with this passage. You understand, right? For to will is present with me. I want to live for God. Do you want to live for God? Say amen if you want to live a righteous and holy life for God. Oh, man, I want to live for God. I want to look like Jesus tomorrow, more tomorrow than I did yesterday. I want to live for Jesus. I want others to look at me and see a little bit of Jesus in my life. That's what I want. I want to live for God. For to will is present with me. But when I start looking inside old Andrew, the ability to live that life is not there. Because I'll try and try and try, and I will always fail. For it is God which worketh in me. 
You see, when I face these hard times in life, when I face temptation, when I want to live the Christian life, I do not reach down in the reserves of my own spirit and my own desire and my own experience and intellect and knowledge. I don't reach down in the depth of me. I reach down in the reserve of Almighty God and ask for His assistance in this endeavor. For it is God which worketh in me. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. So how are you going to live the Christian life? Well, you better not live it on your own. I'll tell you that right now. How are you going to live the Christian life? It's you and God working together. Oh, you got to let go and let God, but you got to do some of it too. You got to, you got to commit. You will not grow spiritually if you do not work at it deliberately. And the reason I have such a lengthy introduction tonight is because of the topic that we speak about. Adding to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge. And we're to add knowledge. Here's the temptation. We can read books and add knowledge, can't we? If I want to learn what color of fish and lure works better in uh, cloudy water, you know what I got, probably got to do? Just go read about it. And I can probably find that out pretty quick. You know, if I, if I want to figure out how to change the cabin air filter in my wife's car, all I have to do is Google it and it'll pop up on YouTube, right? And I can, I can learn that and I can figure that out and I can glean knowledge in that area. But remember, when we're working on our own, we are sure to fail. So just like adding virtue in our life required God's presence, so too must adding knowledge. We cannot do it on our own. We must have God's help. So number one, let's look at the passage tonight. There is a command. The command is that we add knowledge. And I find this kind of unique because there seems to be, at first glance, a crisis in the passage. We are to add first virtue and secondly knowledge. But if you ask me, it would seem more appropriate that those be switched. Right. Uh, think about it. Add to your virtue. We talked about this yester- uh, last week. Uh, yester week, I almost said. Uh, we talked about this last week. Add to your faith virtue. Well, virtue was defined as moral excellence resembling God in all of our endeavors in life, that our humility and our honesty and uh, all of those types of things, and our, our charity and our chastity, all of these things would look like God and we would be morally excellent in these things. But doesn't it make sense before you start to work on something to look at the instructions first? I'll never, uh, just this last week, we, had, we got our new projectors. How many of you are thankful that you can actually see the screens? Amen. Praise the Lord. God is good. In Him is no darkness at all, but light. Amen. So we finally have screens we can see. What a blessing that is. We got them out of the box. We started to mount them and everything. And we pulled out the handbook or, or the, the, the manual there. And almost 95% of the directions are in Chinese. Could not understand them at all. So we kind of wung it and finally got something on the screens. But, but you know, if, if we're going to fix something or set out on a task, it makes sense to learn about it first, to be educated in that endeavor. 
But here's what you must understand. Scripture is the way it is by no accident. It makes sense to us that we would have uh, knowledge before virtue comes, but Scripture is not wrong when it says, add to your faith virtue and then knowledge. So why is it that way? Why Why does this crisis exist? Well, here's my two cents on the matter. When you meet God, you understand your sinful nature and His holiness. And once you understand that, a lot of the questions you have about sin are answered. You see, the adulterer does not need more information on whether or not what he's doing is wrong. The adulterer is, uh, uh, has set out on his path knowing full well that it will potentially hurt his family and potentially someone else's family. He does not need to be taught from the Bible why it's wrong. Morality just tells us he's wrong. Now, if you were to consult the Bible, Proverbs 6, verse 32, But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. Exodus 20, verse 14, one of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, the Bible does say that it's wrong, but simple moral code says adultery is wrong. You do not have to teach the thief when he takes something that what he's doing is wrong. He's doing it at his own benefit at the expense of someone else. He's taking advantage of someone else. Now, you don't have to go through the Bible to understand that. You just understand that automatically. Now, Leviticus 19 verse 11 says, Yea, ye shall not steal, neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another. Exodus chapter 20 verse 15, Thou shalt not steal. Now, it doesn't get much more plain than that, right? But morality in and of itself kind of answers a lot of life's questions on its own. You see, when we meet God, we ought to have a desire to look like God. When we begin to love God, we love Him because of His inherent goodness. We love Him because He is holy and He is high, and we set our affection on that. So that's why virtue comes first. Virtue comes first because as soon as you meet God, there's a desire to be like God. And God puts that in us, so we seek virtue first. Now, it's unique. If you were to go to the nursery this evening, you wouldn't have to... uh, Us parents that would like see our kids interacting with other kids, I know my children have this problem. When they want a toy worse than your child wants a toy, they make it known that they want that toy more. More. You see, your child may have a little dinosaur or whatever, but if Bailey wants that dinosaur, she'll run up, grab the dinosaur, and like the uh, demon-possessed man in Gadara, she would shout, Mine! You know, very similar to the, you know, maniac of Gadara. So that's what kids say, Mine! Mine! Well, what do we as parents teach them? No, that's not yours. You give that back. We've got to share. When they're done with it, then you can play with it. Now, why do we take that route? Why do we not cite penal code at them? Why do we not tell them that the end result of that action will one day put them in front of a judge with hopefully an attorney as good as Brother Adam Bernie representing them? Why do we not go through all of that? I'll tell you why. 
Because we're trying to teach morality, not legislation. We're not trying to teach them what the law says. We're just trying to teach them how to be a basic, good human being. And and so that's why virtue comes first. So there is a crisis in the passage, at least it seems. But the clarification to the passage is this. When we understand what the Bible means by knowledge, we will not have any question at all. See, the Bible is not simply saying knowledge is in the form of knowing something. This word is the Greek word gnosko. Now, I took two years of Greek in Bible college. The reason I did not take pastoral ministry is because I didn't want to take the extra two years of Greek that was involved in that. So, I'm just a church ministry major, y'all. I'm sorry, I'm not qualified to be your pastor. But besides that, this was one of my vocabulary words, believe it or not, gnosko. The reason I know this is because it was easy to remember. Gnosko, right? What does it mean? It means to know. But more thoroughly explained, it means to understand. It means correct insight, truth properly comprehended, and applied. See, it's one thing to know something. It's another thing to react upon that knowledge. Even Jesus taught about things just like this. He said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Therefore, whoso heareth these sayings of mine... What is that? Well, that's knowledge. And therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them. So that's gnosko. That's hearing, knowing, and doing. God's will for every Christian is that we would not only know the will of God, but that we would do the will of God. And in this word, gnosko, it's what it means. Knowing and doing. Truth apprehended and truth applied. Now, there's a lot of difference in experience and expertise. What I mean by that is, how many of you would prefer to have a doctor fresh out of medical school? He happened to graduate valedictorian of his class, but I mean, he's never cut on anybody. How many of you want that guy to perform your surgery? I'll tell you what, I'll take the C student that's been at it for 25 years. Why? Because expertise does not trump experience. Now, expertise is good. The difference is, one is a head knowledge, the other one is a learned experience. One is knowing something, the other is knowing and practicing something. That's what this is. That's why we're to add to our faith virtue. How about we just start looking and living like God? Add to our faith virtue. But the knowledge of the Christian life is finding out what this book says on some of the grayer matters of the Christian life and doing what the will of God wants you to. It's gnosko. There is a command in Scripture. You see, many Christians know what the fruits of the Spirit are, but few Christians know how to exercise them. A lot of Christians know all sorts of things about the Bible, but few Christians actually apply the Bible to their life. 
The Bible says in James chapter 1, For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man, beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he is. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. The idea is a, a man coming to the mirror and looking at himself and not realizing that he has a piece of broccoli between his teeth and a booger hanging out of his nose and his hair is all messed up. He looks at the mirror and just keeps going about his day. None of us would do that. How many Christians read their proverb a day and forget to apply it? Amen. How many Christians take their daily bread but forget to actually digest it? Yeah. What a problem there is. The command is that we would seek and add knowledge. Number two, not only is there a command, but there is a companion in this endeavor. I said earlier, the Christian life must be you wanting to work and God working in, in you. You see, it's, it's a teamwork. God wants to do everything for you. Without Him, things are impossible for us. So God wants to work in our life. So there's a companion that he gives us. Because, number one, we seek a unique knowledge. It is not a knowledge that everyone has. The Bible tells us about men in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 7, that they are ever learning and never, come, never able to come to the knowledge of truth. So there's people who are always learning but never arriving at knowledge. I don't want to be one of those people. I want to learn the knowledge that God wants me to learn. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness unto God. Now, you can learn about all sorts of stuff in this world. You know, you can learn about horses. You can learn about cars. You can learn about boats. You can learn about exercise and diet and, you know, what's in this spring and all sorts of stuff. You can, you can learn about all of this stuff. But God says, there is a knowledge that I want you to have that is not of this world. Amen. A knowledge that even the world looks at and considers it foolishness, but I consider their knowledge foolishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but, to unto, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? See, what we seek after is a unique knowledge. Now, I know people that are knowledgeable about all sorts of stuff, and I'll tell you what, it's pointless. The, I, I, I enjoy reading about all sorts of stuff. I enjoy reading about the ranger's farm system. You know why I enjoy reading about the ranger's farm system? Because they ain't got much going on in the major league system, actually. I even know the, the oddities of baseball uh, uh, managering. Oh, that was kind of a rough way to say that. But, but, but I, I understand things about the Rule 5 draft. Many of you probably don't even know what that is. I know what it is to be designated for assignment. I know what it is to have three options in baseball. Now, a lot of you, all you know is home run. A lot of you, all you know is what a double looks like or a play. You could maybe name the positions. I know all of the stuff that nobody even cares to know. And you know what? 
it's never one time served me well. I mean, when I talk to John Scahill, every now and again we have a pretty good little dialogue about it. But other than that, you know, that's not ever helped me when I'm out witnessing, witnessing to somebody. You know, somebody has never stopped me at the third point of the Romans road and said, okay, is this kind of like when, you know, when uh, uh, Rugnet Odor got sent down to the miners? No, no, no. <laughs> Very similar to hell. Is it kind of like a, ta- a typology of the miner? No, no, it's not like that. It's never served me well. My point is this. You could spend your life researching all sorts of things that really will not matter in the scope of eternity. Gnosko. Find what God's knowledge is and seek after that knowledge. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2 says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. The knowledge that God wants us to have is spiritual knowledge, not carnal knowledge. You can know the cubic inches on every Chevrolet pickup ever made, but it really will not matter. God doesn't care about the, the knowledge of this world. He wants you to know about the knowledge of the world to come. Spiritual knowledge. So we have a unique knowledge, but number two, we have a unique teacher. I'll never forget, one year at Joshua Christian Academy, we were hurting for a Spanish teacher. We couldn't find one, and so we decided to use what was called Link. Link. Now, what that was, now this was, in, man, I'm telling you what, oh, man, I graduated in 2007, so this is like early 2000s, so a long, long time ago. Um, we had a TV set at the front of the room. Now, when I say TV, I don't mean like flat screen TV. I don't mean like, you know, smart TV. I mean one of those TVs that when your buddy calls you up and says, hey, you want to help me move? You're like, oh, everything but the TV. Okay, one of those TVs. And there at the front of the room was the TV. And then at every seat there was a phone. And this phone was how you communicated in the classroom. And it was not just you in your classroom and your teacher, but it was you, your classroom, and a whole bunch of other classrooms around the nation, and your phone worked with all of them. And every once in a while, the teacher would say, if you think the answer is A, press 1. So you would pick up your phone and you'd press 1, and that's how they took like a poll. This was like cutting-edge stuff before Twitter, guys. I'm telling you, this was awesome. I'll never forget, Mr. Cansino was his name. Really nice guy. I'm sure he's you know, really good Christian, whatever, but man, he was just so jolly, and I had such a good time in that class. I didn't really learn that much, though, because it was difficult for me when the, see, there was so many of us in the class, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of us in the class. When I had a question on something, Mr. Cansino didn't wait for me. He just kept going. We have a unique teacher in this pursuit of knowledge that the Bible tells us that we should add. We have the Holy Spirit of God. You know what's awesome about the Holy Spirit of God? There's so many things, but one of the great things is He never leaves any one of us behind. He knows exactly the perfect lesson plan to draw up, and He never skips a day of school. You see, the Holy Spirit of God is working in us each and every day. 
We neglect this so much, but the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual Oh, we have a very unique knowledge that this world may scoff and mock at, but we have a great teacher that will help us understand anything that God wants us to know. Isn't it awesome when you read through your Bible and the Holy Spirit of God reveals something to you that you never knew before or maybe that you've never heard a preacher say before and it's just your little nugget and it's your little thing that you can cling on to for the day? You know who that is? That's your teacher teaching you a lesson for that day. I love how the Bible says, uh, the psalmist says it like this. Psalm chapter 119 verse 18. Open thou mine eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. The Holy Spirit of God is our teacher. And He is the perfect teacher for every situation. There's a command and there is a companion. But number three, and I want you to pay attention here, and I hate to go this route. I, I don't love like using words like this. But there's a condemnation as well. If you will take your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Chapter number four. Hosea is right after Daniel, for those of you that are like, Oh, Hosea, for real? Way to go, preacher. Hosea chapter 4. Hosea is a very sad book in the Bible. You see, it's sad because Hosea is a prophet of God. Just like Jeremiah, just like Isaiah... Hosea is given a task that seems almost, almost out of character for the Lord. See, in chapter 1, verse 2, God tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute. That sounds kind of strange, and it is. But what God was trying to teach the nation of Israel through this is that what Hosea was going through... God was going through with Israel. Amen. You see, Israel was not faithful to God. At this point in Israel's history, they were idolatrous to the hilt. In fact, one of their kings had basically forbid them to go to uh, uh, Jerusalem anymore. So he made his own religion to keep them from becoming loyal to uh, Judah. Uh, this is just an absolutely... Uh, apostate time in the nation of Israel's history. Uh, they're wicked through and through. They're idolatrous through and through. They're lawless. They do not obey God. Uh, there's no respect of God at all. And it's with all of this going on, I want to read Hosea chapter 4, verse number 1 to you. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a great controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood touches blood, meaning brother is doing it to brother, sister is doing it to sister. 
Therefore shall the land mourn, and every one that dwelleth therein shall languish with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of the air. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Yet let no man strive nor reprove another, for thy people are as they that strive with the priests. Therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night, and I will destroy thy mother. Verse number 6, and this is where our passage really comes to a point. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. That thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. I will also forget thy children. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore will I change their glory into shame. They eat up in the sin of my people, and they set their heart of, uh, on their iniquity. And there shall be, and they there shall be like people, like priests. And I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their doings. For they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase, because they have left off to take heed to the Lord. You say, brother Andrew, what's so important about knowledge? I don't know, we could ask Hosea. But the Lord got very angry with Israel for lack of their knowledge of Him. They become so preoccupied and so confused and so focused on other things that they had forgotten the true God of Israel. And God says, my people are destroyed. Why? For lack of knowledge. I'll just be very honest with you, Christian. Knowledge of God and knowledge of the things of God is at an all-time high in Christianity. When going through a 16-week curriculum in discipleship seems like it's a lot to you, there's something wrong. That's just simply the Christian life. That's the simple things of the Christian life. We are... uh, so ignorant of the things of God. If I were to ask you why we ought not drink alcohol, could you answer? If I were to ask you why we should not accept alien baptism, would you have an answer? If I were to ask you why homosexuality is wrong, and don't just tell me because you think it's wrong, or don't just quote about Sodom and Gomorrah, you find in the Bible and tell me where homosexuality is wrong, and then we'll start to believe you. But the reason our world does not respect anything that we say is because we really can't back any of it up when we say it. Knowledge is at an all-time low in Christianity, and yet we walk around like we're living the Christian life. We're so far from living the Christian life, we can't even say Christian. The only place we have Christian in our life is on our Facebook. And yet we don't represent it, we just check the box. I'm telling you right now, knowledge is at an all-time low. And the Bible tells us here, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Oh, sure, even if we do know about the fruits of the Spirit, even if we do know about the Ten Commandments, knowing is not enough. Knowing and doing is what God desires. And at all time low. And the condemnation is this that our knowledge of things directly affects our actions. You see, it does. It affected the people here in Hosea. They had forgotten all about God. I guess 
dads stopped putting their sons on their knees and telling them of the great things that God had done for Israel. Moms stopped helping their daughters understand how good God had been to Israel and there was just a complete lack of knowledge about God. And so you see two direct effects of that. Uh, In verse number two, uh, we see that there's a neglect of obeying God's law by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery. Almost every one of those is a direct uh, uh, breaking of the Ten Commandments. Christianity right now is at a place where we don't even like saying the word commandments. I'm not so worried about the commandments coming out of, you know, uh, courtrooms or schools. My concern is that it's coming out of churches too. When we lose knowledge of God, we lose perspective on why we should live for God. They definitely had a neglect of the Ten Commandments. Then there's a neglect of their teachers. The Bible goes on and tells us uh, in verse number 4, Yet let no man strive nor reprove another, for thy people are as they that strive with the priests. The priests were failing the people. The priests were not teaching what they should be teaching. They were not taking stances when they should be taking stances. And I was so thankful this morning that preacher preached the message that he did. I don't think you can come into our church and hear a message like that and think that we are losing our stance on morality or sin or we're not compromising those areas because preacher just flat out laid it out. If we do not have revival, we will not live and survive as a church. He was not placing the blame at the foot of America, which a lot of preachers do. He was not placing the blame at the foot of uh, uh, legislators and politicians, which a lot of uh, preachers do. But if anybody is at fault for the state of Christianity in this country, it is the preachers and the pulpits and the churches and the people that are produced by those. There was a complete lack of knowledge. And that lack of knowledge directly affects our actions. And here's the saddest part. God's actions are directly affected by our knowledge. Look in verse number 6. I'm not making this up. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And then it says this, Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I want you to read to the next comma with me. Ready, go. I will also reject thee. Because you've rejected knowledge, I will reject you. There ought not be one thing in the Christian life more comforting than this, that God is with you. The Bible says, For I have... Uh, uh, promise thee, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I like how the Bible says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, His rod and His staff, they comfort us, they guide us. He leadeth me in uh, paths of still waters. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. I love the fact that God's hand is always with us. And I like reading stories in the Bible about God's hand being on His children. I like reading stories about David standing up for uh, God when nobody else would. And there that little boy approaches the, the, the giant there. Then down in that valley, everybody stands up on the, the valley rim, sh- shaking in their armor. And yet David goes down there and he says, I'm not fighting this fight in my own strength. I'm not fighting this fight for me. I'm fighting this fight in the name of the Lord God of Israel. And today the dogs will eat of your flesh. And that day God wrought a great victory through David. It was not David doing it. It was not David's courage or his ability or his expertise. I get 
tired when preachers start telling me about how much David practiced with that slingshot. None of that mattered. What mattered was God was with David. And for that matter, it could have been a fly flew up Goliath's nose because God was with David. I love seeing God be with his people. I love reading stories like the three Hebrew children. Man, what a story. They finally have the courage to not bend. They have the courage when everybody else is bowing, them three stood by their cell. Can you imagine the picture that that must have created? I imagine it on a plane. In fact, I believe the Bible says the, the, the statue had been built on the plane, plane of memory, if I'm not getting it wrong. And, and there, when the salt, uh, salt, uh, salt, no, dulcimer, saltery, sack butt, which is my personal favorite. I think it's a saxophone, though. But uh, all of those instruments, when they were supposed to play, everybody bowed. Could you imagine a plane of a thousand people bowing and how... Out in the open, three guys standing up and a crowd of everybody else bowing must have looked. I mean, there was no shame in those three three guys. And there they approached Nebuchadnezzar and he says, Did not we straightly command you at the times which you heard the saltimer, the sackbutt, the dulcimer, and all these wonderful instruments? He says, Did we not straightly command you that you should bow? And they say, O king, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter, but our God is able to deliver us from thee. But if not, But if not, we are not careful to answer you. We're not going to bend. We're not going to bow. And I like how the king gives them a second opportunity as if reconsidering the matter will help them. And there they get thrown uh, into that furnace there. And then the Bible says this. That king looked down in that furnace... And you can say whatever you want about new translations. You can say whatever you want to say about the Textus Receptus and the Masoretic text and all of these other things. But there is nothing more encouraging in all of Scripture than when that king looks in that furnace and says, Did not we only throw three men into the fire? But lo and behold, I see four men up loose walking around in the fire. And the fourth has the image of the Son of God. I'm telling you there's nothing better than that in all of Scripture. That God is with His people. I love hearing about Elijah up there on Mount Carmel. Man, one guy against all of them other false prophets. There he stands looking at all of them and they are doing their very best to call down fire from heaven. They jump on that altar, they get their rocks and they begin to cut themselves and they do this all day long. And I love Elijah. He's just like a Baptist preacher sitting up there being sarcastic. Maybe your God sleepeth. (laughs) Maybe he is on a long journey. (laughs) I just love that. It's like, you can hear the, the, the drums playing in the background, you know, because he's just cracking on these guys. I love that. But when it's Elijah's turn, there's no doubt about it. He stands up and says, hey, boys, how about you put a little more water on that fire? And there they come in the middle of a drought, by the way. They come and they put more water on that fire. And they put more water on that fire. And finally, Elijah prays that the God of heaven would call down fire from heaven. And it doesn't take him all day. And Elijah doesn't have to cut himself. But God answers Elijah's prayer. Why? Because God works for his people. And there ought not be anything in your life more comforting than the knowledge that God... God is on your side. And there ought not be anything more terrifying than knowing that he's not. I'm reminded of Samson. The young man who had all the opportunity and all the blessings from God. There he is showing his strength and his dominance over every foe he had ever faced. And yet you fast forward just a few weeks. Now he's between a couple pillars. 
strapped to them. He's the pinata for the party. Blinded. There he is grinding. What a shame. How do you get there? Not knowing God is not with you. Because the Bible says he shook himself and he would go out as at other times before and he knew not. He wist not that God had departed from him. Man, I'm so encouraged when I read passages that promises God presence, but I am more terrified at passages that show me that a backslidden Christian will not have God's presence. You know the passages I'm talking about. You know when the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear you. You know the passages I'm talking about in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 25. Your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withholding good things from you. You know the passages I'm talking about in Isaiah chapter 1. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear you. Your hands are full of blood. Proverbs chapter 15 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he heareth the prayer of the righteous. There ought not be anything that lifts your spirit more than knowing that God is with you, but there ought not be anything in your life that concerns you more than knowing that God is not with you. The Bible says in Hosea chapter 4 verse 6, Because thou hast rejected knowledge... I will also reject thee. What you do with knowledge has direct implications on what God does with you. Do you desire knowledge? I'm not talking about heart. I'm not talking about head knowledge. I'm not talking about knowing how many angels can stand on the head of a needle as they strum their harps. None of that matters. I'm talking about knowledge that starts academically, but then is exercised actively. I'm talking about knowledge that starts in your head and then somehow works its way in your heart as the Holy Spirit develops that in your life. Do you desire the knowledge of God? Proverbs 18 verse 15 says this, The heart of the prudent getteth knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeketh knowledge. We are to add to our faith virtue and to our virtue knowledge. Do you crave knowledge? Do you desire knowledge that is given by the Spirit of God and exercised each day in your life? What you do with knowledge directly affects what God does with you.